Hello and welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm Faisal Yafai, and this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. It's been more than a week since the military coup in Sudan, and tens of thousands of defiant citizens continue to protest. It was after similar protests in 2019 that the armed forces first conceded power to the power-sharing agreement with civilian leaders, which formed the country's interim government. At the end of October, however, they overthrew the Joint Sovereignty Council on the orders of its chairman, Lieutenant General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, detaining dozens of civilian leaders and terminating the already troubled transition to full civilian government. The new ruling junta is trying hard to control the flow of information from the country. And in a way, they have succeeded. Shutting down the internet and disrupting mobile phone networks have made it very difficult to get an understanding of what is happening on the ground in Sudan. We have faced this on this very podcast. We have spent a week, not just me, the team as well, trying to get hold of reporters and activists on the ground. And it's been difficult. We haven't been able to record interviews. We've often not been able to get hold of people. When we do, the phone lines cut out or people aren't getting text messages so they can't respond. Interviewees that we wanted to have on this podcast were not able to join us because of the technical challenges instituted by the military takeover. So the real story of what is happening in Sudan is simply not being told in as detailed a way as it should be. But today, you'll hear first-hand testimony of how it feels to live with these restrictions, how it felt to see Sudan's people once again take to the streets in support of democratic civilian rule, the measures the military has taken to suppress dissent, and what the mood on the ground is as Sudan enters this next pivotal phase in its history. First, we'll hear from Dali Abdul Munim, a former journalist and activist in the Sudanese capital, Khartoum. With the internet across the country shut down, we spoke via phone and our conversation was occasionally interrupted. But I started by asking her what the situation in the capital was like after so many days of protests. It's tiring. Striking isn't easy. To go on strike, you know, just stay at home and not be able to do something is does take a toll on people. So I can understand why some have decided to open their shop or open, you know, go out and whatever. I still feel, I think economically, this, we took a huge hit. Sudan took a huge hit, and I don't know how we'll be, you know, we'll be able to recover from that. But it's one of those hits that had to be done, had to be made. You were part of the organizers of the, the protests against the coup. Do you feel that it's making a difference currently? It did, because it, it, the one thing that struck me was like it didn't de- it didn't need much organizing literally the the, uh, the announcement of the army taking oh, the coup was on monday morning we woke up to the news and immediately afterwards we heard we got all these reports of protests er- erupting throughout the city of khartoum let alone other cities throughout the country before in the past we had to like really organize and send out pamphlets and flyers and whole talks you know this time it just grew organically. It just happened because that fear factor has definitely gone. I mean, really, there, I mean, when, when I went out on the protest on the 21st and the 30th, there was no one had fear in their eyes. I mean, they were out there in the open. They could have been attacked and they were attacked, but they didn't care. They were, you know, because they, they're fighting for something that they really believe in. 
And that is no to the military. We want civilian rule. And that's, uh, that's the basic message that everyone seems to get and everyone is, you know, espousing for. It's not something that we're just repeating for, for you know, for repetition's sake. And it's that's... Truly because, like I've said before, yeah. yeah I was going to say, and, and that's... that's um something that you feel when you're among the protesters, that you feel that there is this this wave of support for the transition, ideally, back to a civilian government? Absolutely. I mean, we, like I said, we all admit they've made mistakes. It's not a perfect transition in the gover- trans- transitional government, but it's, it represents us, it represents, it represents the people, because throughout our history, We've only ever had military rule. I think with the exception of Sadiq al-Mahdi's two-year rule, we've always been governed by the military. And the military, without fail, has continuously stabbed us in the back as people, whether it's by waging war or by, you know, resulting in uh, internally, ID, uh, internally displaced people. You know, we haven't, we haven't had a moment of, you know, of calm, of continuity under the military. And this was the only time, I mean, things haven't been easy. It never is. I mean, you're talking about taking over after a 30-year rule of uh, of a regime that really stamped itself within the society, within the culture, within the the mindset, the you know, the, of of, the, of this country. So it was never going to be easy. But we were on the right track. We were taken off the terror supporting list. You know, donors were beginning to line up to help us out. You know, at the World Bank, our debts were relieved. There were so many positives to come out. And then for all of that to just disappear overnight, there was no way anyone was going to accept that. No way, especially, especially the youth. Because at the end of the day, they're the ones who are most harmed, whether it's by this regime, by this military regime or by the former or whatever. They're the ones who bear the brunt of all the mistakes and of all the bad rulings that the military has undertaken in the past. You do seem to get that impression, I think, from... I mean, social media is very difficult these days because of the the internet blackout. But you do get that impression that there was a sense among young people that they were moving into the international community. As you say, the sanctions had been lifted and there was a movement towards being part of what young people want to be part of, which is the wider community. And you you sense that now... And you sense that now that has been... That, that that feeling has gone away and they want it back urgently. They, uh, they understand that if they continue down the path that Burhan wants to take, then we will go back to where we were three years ago, back to square one. And that's just impossible. I mean, the chance, the chance of this, you know, the protests, the last protests were like, we're not going back. There's no returning. They know, and that was, you know, it's like I said, they know what they want. They're very clear in their argument. They're very clear in their demands. I mean, and the support, and it's, maybe it's difficult from those, but for me, the way that I see the, the transition in thought and in speaking out of the people is just breathtaking because they went from people who didn't know whether they'd be able to dislodge a regime after 30 years in power to people who now believe they can do it and that they will do it and they won't accept anything else other than that. And you don't have any confidence in General Burhan. You don't believe what he's saying about avoiding a civil war and having a transition to stability. Of course, I've never trusted the military. I never have. I never will. But I do realize the necessity of having an institution like a military. I get that. But it does not mean that we turn a blind eye to all their actions and just you know and forget what they've done in the past. 
And what they're doing right now, I mean, until now, where are all the detained ministers? We have no news on them. We know where Hamdok is, but we don't know where the others are. So if you're really set on, on wanting to can, you know, save the revolution, then why are you not clear with, you know, where are all the detainees? Why are you shutting us out of the, you know, why, are you, why have you cut out all our communication? Why did you fire on the protesters who did nothing but protest peacefully? So everything he said, he's gone and done something totally against it, which just proves to me that he is not to be trusted. And at the same time, we also have to look at the big picture. Who is backing the army? Who is backing the military? I mean, they don't do this just out of the blue. It's, you know, it seems like there is certain steps put into place and they thought they would fall, you know, into the slots that they were meant to be in, but they didn't, simply because of the pressure that came from the international community. And we can't underestimate that. I, I wonder if you think that the the military has been taken by surprise at the level of both international support for Sudan and also the people protesting, because there hasn't been quite the same level of violence from the military as there was during the, the 2019 revolution. Yes, I honestly, yes, I think they really were shocked. They didn't expect the support to continue to be so strong and so loud for Hamdok. And then, you know, the international community, you know, adding their voices to ours. I think they underestimated the fact that it's in the best interest of everyone, you know, including geo- geopolitically as well, that we continue to be on a stable path. And they underestimated that. But then again, it's the military. They're they're one-track-minded, so to speak. I mean, they've been so successful in the past with their system. I don't think they ever, you know, comprehended or even thought that maybe the system is no longer viable, it's no longer working. And so I wondered if you would take me back to the first day of the coup. How did you hear about it? Just walk me through when it became clear that the that the military had seized control and then what you did next. You said that you already saw that there were lots of people on the ground, but then you started getting organized as well. Yeah, I mean, personally for me, my sister basically woke me up screaming, Dalia, wake up, there's been a coup. Uh, our neighbors tend to be uh, embassy personnel and they were evacuated from their homes and taken to their respective embassies. So that was the first sign for us. And of course, no phone calls. All our phones were completely dead. I mean, pretty much useless pieces of metal in our hands. So we just turned to TV and the pan media was on it. They were on it immediately. They were getting all these reports that there was a coup. And of course, the first sign is always the change in the national television channel. And that switched to bringing on nationalistic and patriotic songs. Those were the telltale signs that something was happening. I mean, the good thing was, you know, they, they, they did this coup, they attempted this coup right after the protest of the 21st. So people's emotions and feelings were still running high. You know, we were still on that high of going out on the 21st. It's pretty much done, you know. They, we, didn't do, we didn't need to do much, you know. It was all set for us. We're so used to organizing without any communication, you know, because they did cut off the internet last in 2019 following the massacre of the sit-in at the general command area. So we know how to get around all these, you know, little obstacles that they place in our path. Mm. So it was just easy. It was just easy to go immediately. All the, you know, all the blockades were built, were put on the main road. I went out with my brother to see the situation and the area, you know, the area we were in already, they were putting blocks on the road. 
and we had to take detours to get to where we wanted to go because uh, my friend still had internet. So I was, I wanted to go to her place so I could, you know, get online and see what was happening. How did you feel but, though? I wonder, because you were, you were part of the 2019 protest as well. How did you feel? Did it feel like deja vu? Angry. No, no, it was just anger. We were all livid because they hijacked our revolution. This army that, that swore they were to, they were here for the people and will stand by the people and they're, they're here to serve the people, that they would go and do something like this was a stab in the back, I mean, and, and a stab in the heart. See, I was, we were all angry, the, my household, we were all just seriously upset and angry, but you have to put emotions aside and start planning and start thinking, okay, what can I do? I mean, what, no matter how small a thing it is that you do, it does make a difference, whether it's if I tweet, or if my sister goes out and, you know, we go from house to house or we try to canvas, you know, you know, we find people within our area, whatever it is a person could do, we all did it. And that's what I think helped galvanize. I mean, the fact that we were able to organize it, that they were able, you know, the resistance committees were able to organize the, the mass protest of, of, of October 30th with limited communication. That to me is just shows you how much strong will there is you know, towards, you know, this revolution and what it means to us as Sudanese. How does it feel for you being inside the country and seeing the way that it's been talked about outside? Do, do you find any disconnect? You said, I think, that you were very pleased with the response of the international community, but I wonder if you feel that Sudanese voices have, have been excluded mainly because of the internet ban. I mean, I, I understand that, yeah, the lack of communication with Sudanese voices is problematic. I completely get that. But I still think, you know, when they talk about it, there's a very disconnected sense of view of what's happening. You know, that they don't get what it means to, you know, what it means to the cigarette seller in the corner of the, of the main road, you know, or the tea lady. What does it mean to her or the, the shop owner or the business owner? Because these are the ones, these are the people who are being directly affected. And they're the ones whose voices need to be heard and need to be expanded most on. And I think that's the one thing I, do, I mean, I, I mean, I, but like, like I said, I get the fact that there wasn't the, the internet cut, cut out, blackout is really an issue. But I still think, you know, people when they when you talk about something like this, especially in a country like Sudan, the voice of the people does matter. What do they think? I mean, going out, taking a huge risk. I mean, when we went out on on the thirtieth. It went, we went out knowing some of us could come injured, killed, anything. We didn't know what would happen to us. Because, like I said, we don't trust the army. So even if he had sworn on the Holy Quran that they weren't going to unleash bullets on us and whatever, we didn't believe it. So we still went out, you know, hearts in our hands, you know, not knowing what's going to happen, but we still did it. We went for hours. We went. We were there from 12 o'clock until 5 o'clock, you know, just chanting and calling for you know return to civilian rule and that says a lot and i hope that there would be better coverage of that but you know to show you know you know people going out in 25 cities in one country it's not a small feat I mean, Especially I know for a country the size of Sudan. Yeah, I mean, I know you know you you yourself are very um, humble about it, but as you say, it is a a very very brave thing for people to do, knowing, of course, the vast repression that other Arab revolutions have had to go through. You, it is entirely plausible, yeah. as you were saying, that a lot of the people you were with would have gone back, 
you know, perhaps without body parts or be in jail or not go back home at all. Yeah. I mean, just taking a phone call or talking on the phone, there's, there, we, we, we do all of that with risk and we take and we know that risk and we accept it simply because we're looking at the bigger picture. You know, it's not, we're not doing it for ourselves. We're doing it for our country, for our people. And this is an opportunity that we just cannot let go. We can't allow it to just slip through our fingers and then shrug our shoulders and say, okay, no problem. No, we'll do it again next time. No, it's either now or never, so to speak. And, and, like, and we're dealing with an entity. The military army, the Nice military is not to be underestimated. It's powerful. And it has the support of armed groups. You know, these armed groups were waging conflict and war in other parts of the country. You know, they're not to be underestimated. And the fact that we still went out against them, against this force, you know, with nothing but banners and our voices, literally, we had nothing. We were carrying nothing except the flags and banners and just shouting our chants and chanting. And that's all. That's, that was the, that's the only weapon we have. That's the only weapon we've been using. But then again, like I said, people don't understand how this this entity. Like we call the the, the old regime, Bashir's regime. We call it Nizam. It's not just a regime. It's more than that. It's it's a way of order. It's a way of life. And this is what the Islamists imposed on Sudan. So we had to like unlock all of these levels that the Islamists had, you know, the Bashir regime had, Im- had implanted into this country. And it's so deep and it's so entrenched, it's not easy to get rid of it. And we're still working on getting rid of it. It's not just getting rid of the top hierarchy, so to speak. It's not about getting Bashir and his cronies out. It's about, you know, taking off all these layers that they've put into place. And, you know, the mindset, the belief, the, the banking system, everything. You're just simply guy- trying to get to work or trying to you know, do an international financial transaction. So many obstacles in our way, and yet we were willing to work on that just to get our country back on track. That was Dali Abdul-Munim in Khartoum. You hear, therefore, the difficulty and uncertainty of these days of the coup. But you hear also how the protesters are not merely responding to what has just happened, but are situating their protests in a much wider context. The opposition to military rule didn't start last week. It started years before. And what the protesters and the international community are responding to is the idea that the military gets to decide where, when, and how the transfer of power happens. After all, in these two years of transition, the military could have staged a coup at any time, but they decided to do it last week in particular. I asked Ismail Kushkush, a Sudanese-American journalist who was based in Khartoum for eight years and is now in New York, that question. What provoked the military into staging the coup? And what did they hope to gain from it? So this month in November was supposed to see the transfer of power from this military-civilian partnership into full civilian rule. Uh, Many people believe that, um, that this is what sparked the military council, the military side of the uh, partnership, to take action uh, out of fear that it would lose um, power, um, that the push to hold members of the military accountable um, to uh, alleged uh, involvement in in crimes, particularly the uh, June 3rd massacre of 2019, 
um, which saw the uh, death of nearly 120 people, um, protesters uh, who were in a sit-in um, just after uh, a couple of months after the fall of Bashir in front of the army headquarters. So this this issue of accountability, of justice, of loss of power, um, the, loss, the loss of access to economic wealth, which is also another uh, important issue. Um, there, there was a committee that was established after the fall of Bashir, um, the, um, the removal of empowerment uh, committee that was to see the uh, removal of the remnants of, 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 uh, of the regime's um, uh, access uh, to, to uh, authority and wealth uh, in, in the state. Uh, which would have meant that the army and in, intelligence would have uh, uh, lost uh, companies. There were certain companies that uh, were alleged to be uh, tied to the army. So all of that, I think, is what uh, were the immediate triggers. There are also other issues in mean, the abortion economics. These are the arguments that the government or the yeah. military has made. Well, that was what I was going to ask you. I mean, do you not therefore believe any of the um, of the comments from the military that they were trying to save the country from a civil war or enforce stability? There are legitimate criticisms to be made to this transitional period. I, you know, I don't want to overlook that, um, whether in how the uh, transition has, uh, the transitional government has uh, dealt with, with a number of issues, how it, the economic policies that it has introduced, some of the uh, legal and uh, uh, social reforms that it has introduced, the uh, the agreements that it has made with uh, rebel groups and uh, who it has included and who it has not. I think these are all legitimate um, arguments. Uh, we saw, I think, uh, very importantly, a, a, uh, in Eastern Sudan, um, uh, groups representing uh, uh, or claim to be representing um, the, the Bija ethnic group, um, very critical of the Juba peace agreement of 2020, which was an agreement between the central government and uh, various rebel groups, uh, and was supposed to deal with the issue of regional and ethnic marginalization in Sudan. This group in Eastern Sudan believes that the agreement um, did, was not um, done fairly and did not uh, legitimately include the um, demands of, of people in eastern Sudan. So it started a sit-in, a, a blockage of the road leading to Sudan's main port on the Red Sea, Port Sudan. That has really uh, choked the economy. Um, so there, there are a number of issues, uh, uh, but again, um, the question that, that, that you know, has risen is, does the military have the right on its own to um, dissolve the, the sovereign council, this council that uh, brought in, brought in uh, members of the military and civilian members uh, to rule the transitional period? Does the military on its own have that right and to um, arrest uh, certain members of the, of the transitional government Right. And bring in a new government uh, of of its choice. I think that's where really the question is. Again, and that question 
I wonder what your answer to that question is, but it certainly seems as if the international community's answer to that question is that no, they do not. Uh, and not only the international community, but but I think on the street. I mean, we did see protests uh, in favor of a military takeover. We did see a sit-in in front of the Republican Palace in Khartoum in favor, in support of the military, in, in support of dissolving the transitional government. But we saw much, much larger protests only days after in support of uh, the uh, civilian transitional. This was on the 21st of October, on the anniversary of Sudan's 1964 October Revolution, the very first people power movement um, that successfully brought down the military government. Um, and, and it was only days after that um, that we saw the, the military take uh, dissolve the Sovereign Council on October 25th, which also might have been a, a, a factor leading to the uh, swift um, decision by the military to uh, dissolve um, the transitional government. Uh, seeing what kind of reaction, uh, you know, from 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 the people on the, from people on the ground uh, to any uh, action. Do you think? Do you think that the the army was surprised by how fast and how forceful the response was? I think all of us were surprised. I think for the majority of Sudanese, the idea of a transition into full civilian rule into a true democracy, I think um, outweighs any uh, uh, short-term promises that the military may have to offer. But in terms of how the military thought that this would go, I wonder if you feel that they, they believe that they can hold the line for now, or do you think that they think they need to have some sort of dialogue, for example, with Hamdok? Well, I think right now uh, it's apparent that they need to have that dialogue. Um, and that um, the best um, outcome, the military, I mean, and this is you know, my, my speculation of what the military is thinking, is that you can't have uh, a, a quote unquote old school type of military takeover. Um, they need to be in dialogue with, uh, with the civilian leaders. They need to be to have some sort of civilian face. You need uh, the type of uh, financial and diplomatic assistance that um, the transitional government had been seeking. Um, you need some sort of legitimacy uh, among the people of Sudan. I mean, it, to, to come with to come about with a military takeover. Uh, only two years after the uh, successful ousting of al-Bashir, who ruled for three decades, that's a generation. I don't think the mood among Sudanese um, uh, is to accept any type of return to a uh, military rule. And you think that even if the military comes up with some sort of workaround, for example, this suggestion that Burhan might create a government of technocrats, and that they might bring the former prime minister back to lead it. Do you think that in any of those circumstances, the public will have trust in the military? Uh, I, I think that, that that's the key, the word right now, trust. I think trust is lost. Um, there will be, um, I mean, we, we have to realize that the, the very agreement um, for this partnership, 
2019, uh, the, the constitutional um, document. Uh, or there were many who were critical of it to begin to begin with. Uh, there were many who thought that um, the, the 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 thrust of the 2019 revolution should have continued and should have sought to the absolute removal of any uh, remnants of the military. Uh, but an agreement was made. But what we are going to see is behind the scenes uh, moves and uh, 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 intermediary efforts by international players, regional players, the African Union and the United Nations, the United States, to um, at minimum return to some sort of um, uh, to to return to um, uh, the, the the status quo of or the uh, military uh, dissolve the government. Um, but uh, I I highly doubt that the uh, at, at the uh, grassroots level that most Sudanese will, will, will look that favorably. Do you accept the idea expressed by an activist that we spoke to that the the way of governing the country for thirty years has actually seeped into the mindset of the country? That this this rule by the military for, as you say, a generation has impacted the way that Sudanese understand themselves. I think that might be in how um, those in the position of power. But I, I you know, I, I, I there, there was a key phrase during the 2019 revolution. Why? This is a revolution of consciousness. What do you mean by a revolution of consciousness? The issue, the the that they, the addressing of the issues of uh, um, marginalization, the issues of identity, the issues of transitioning into a true democracy, not the uh, you know quote unquote renting of royalties, uh, the the issue of uh, of you know where where access to power becomes a, a type of uh, appeasement to rebel groups. Um, I mean, even even some of the the, the current um, arrangements that has allowed for uh, uh, basically quote unquote people with guns to be a part of the transitional government. I think there there are many who uh, um, uh, look at that unfavorably. Um, uh, the the idea is to have a true democracy where the issues of the country are, are frankly addressed. Ismail Kushkush there talking about his hope and the hope of many Sudanese that a transition to democracy can truthfully address some of the deep-rooted issues in the country. Sudan is at a crossroads. General al-Bashir is gone, but the coup proves that the spectre of the military still haunts the country. I'm reminded of what Dali abdul Manim said, that military rule has become a way of order and a way of life. It remains to be seen whether Sudan will exercise the ghosts of the Bashir regime once and for all. Thank you to our guests today. If you'd like to hear more from them, you can find Dali abdul Manim on Twitter at Dalia SD, that's Dalia with two L's, and you can find Ismail Kushkush on Twitter at iKushkush. This week's podcast was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Faisal Yafai. You can subscribe to the New Lines magazine podcast on your favorite podcast app. And of course, you can find more stories on Sudan and from across the Middle East and beyond on our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us.